Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your uh, presence this day. We've lifted our voices. We have echoed back to you the greatness of your being. And Father, we desire for you now to speak to us in ways that are personal and uh, powerful. And uh, so you are the attraction this day. You and you alone are worthy to be heard. Father, your servant acknowledges that which you already know, that he's neither capable nor worthy of the task at hand. So would you choose and be pleased to minister to us? In a room with this many people, we have uh, diverse and difficult needs. We have people who are living in a week that's full of delight and everything in between. And so would you speak as only you can to us personally. Uh, teach us wonderful things from your word this day. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. And amen. Open your Bibles this morning to Hebrews uh, chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. While you're turning there... Let me ask you this, have you ever had to make sacrifices in life? You can, you can speak out. Have you ever had to make a sacrifice in life? Wow, a lot of you haven't had to do that. Can we pass the offering plate again, Pastor Kevin? We should get that plate. <clears throat> I did a funeral on uh, Friday, I think I mentioned that to you last Sunday. I did a funeral on Friday and whenever I do a funeral, I'm reminded of the story of <clears throat> Mildred Mildred's husband, George, passes away. And Mildred uh, says to George's brother, Herb, Herb, George has never had a suit. I want you to go buy him a very nice suit because I don't want him looking like he always looked like he was out in his garage working. I want him to have a nice suit. Now, they're a little concerned because Herb, George's brother, is a bit of a dimwit. But Mildred says, I've never bought a suit. Here's my credit card. You go and you spend money. I don't care what kind of sacrifice I have to make. I want George to look good. So the day comes for the viewing and they go in to see George there. And boy, he looks like a million bucks. He looks great. And uh, they have the funeral. They bury him at the little uh, luncheon afterwards. Mildred goes to Herb and says, Herb, I have not always given you the respect you deserve, but I gave you a task to get George a suit. And he looked marvelous. He looked like he was getting married. He looked so handsome. And Herb says, well, I know, Mildred, you said no sacrifice was too great, so I didn't buy him a suit, I rented him a tux. <laughs> Somehow I thought that would be funnier in my office this week. Sacrifice, right? Sacrifice. Sometimes sacrifices are so real and profound. A friend of mine, Eric, who lives in California, he's a missionary from his church. Another missionary couple were sent out young couple with a baby sent out to the mission field, made great sacrifice to get there. They were hardly there for a few weeks in this very rudimentary place where they were living and the wife is changing the baby on the bed and there's a ceiling fan and the ceiling fan in this old rickety place they're staying is not attached properly. The ceiling, falls, ceiling fan falls and takes the life of this baby. They've only been on the mission field a few weeks. They come home, they're devastated and the church says, we would like to send you off on a vacation to one of these you know, Caribbean resorts. And so they go down for a vacation down there. And on the vacation, the husband makes a mistake and dives into the shallow end of the pool and fractures his spinal cord and now is in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. 
and you say, Lord, where are you? These people are making sacrifices and now they have to make sacrifices they never imagined. Here's the good news this morning. God knows a lot about sacrifice. He knows a lot about sacrifice. We're gonna see that here in Hebrews chapter nine. Every world religion believes that there is some kind of reckoning for sin. And yet, Christianity is the only one that has a hopeful answer that when things get set straight, that our desires will be fulfilled and our deserving of punishment can be lifted. And last week we talked about the superior covenant found in Christ, and so we're going to revisit that first covenant again here in Hebrews chapter nine and then move on to this new reality in Christ. So look at Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Some translations say the holy of holies having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail because, of course, these Jewish people, they knew how this worked and we may not know how this worked. So I want to show you a couple pictures. Let me show you this first picture, which is a picture sort of of the tabernacle prop or the tabernacle in its entirety so this is the fully walled area it's about 75 approximately by 150 feet so it's not this massive thing it's about a quarter of the size of a football field okay just so you get an idea has these white curtains around the outside of course they represent uh, purity there's one entrance and you walk into this entrance and then you face the altar of burnt offering which you see right in the center sort of of that uh, tented in area there. There you will see that uh, on that uh, altar there's some horns that people would come in and they would tie onto these horns their offerings as they came into this area. And now here's a picture of that proper, the, the tabernacle proper, which is this tented in area, much smaller area. It's the uh, place where the high priest, of course, goes in. It's divided into two sections. You can see that little blue wall there cut away in the center. The, uh, the outer section, the holy place, has the table of showbread, 12 loaves, of course, of bread for 12 tribes. There's the golden lampstand there. You might be able to see that in sort of the forefront, which is the foreshadowing of Christ, who is the light of the world. And then the holy of holies in the back, separated by this massive, beautiful veil. And uh, in the back is a cube containing, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And as we've read, it has this golden uh, urn and manna and Aaron's staff there. And uh, it's just an amazing place. But if you were an Israelite, you would never experience that because it's separated and it's set apart for only the priest. Verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly. That's important, 
regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. People daily would bring their sacrifices, their offerings to the courtyard, and each week the priests would fulfill their mediatorial roles. They would go in and they would light the lamps in the morning and evening, and they would stoke the coals on the altar of of uh, incense and the loaves of bread, those 12 loaves of bread representing the tribes. Every week they'd have to be switched out. I mean, there is a lot to undertake. But in spite of all of that, no one ever dared to go into the holy place. And even the priests, when they would go in there, they wouldn't dare to look behind that curtain. In fact, we read in Numbers 18 that Aaron is warned that if somebody ever goes in there, not only will they die, he'll die as well. God wants us to know and wanted them to know how serious, significant his presence is. Verse 7, but into the second, only the high priest goes and only once a year and not without taking blood. Of course, we talked about this last week, this special day. Uh, the priest, uh, high priest leaves his home seven days in advance and he goes and he begins this rite and ritual of purification. He would practice everything that he was going to do. He didn't want to make any mistakes. He would stay away from anything that defiled him. And in the morning, he would offer a burnt offering. He would bathe his entire body. As I mentioned last week, dress entirely in pure white. And he'd take this bull. He would place his hands on the bull, sacrifice the bull for his and for his family's sin. And then he would turn to the two goats. We talked about that last week. One was designated as an offering for Jehovah and one to Azazel. You may recognize that name, and I'll tell you why here towards the end of our time this morning. And a piece of crimson was tied to that goat. We talked about the scapegoat. And then he would take the, turn back to the, uh, to the bull and sacrifice and take incense into the Holy of Holies. And he would take that blood and he would sprinkle that blood seven times on the mercy seat and on the ground to atone for the sins of his family and he would come back out and then he would sacrifice the goat that was gonna be dedicated to Jehovah and perform the same ritual in the Holy of Holies. Very complicated, very complicated. So we have this picture of this former way of dealing with sin, with evil. This is how the Jewish people found a way to be atoned for their sin. Rituals and requirements, rules and regulations. You know, there's many world religions that have that level of rules and requirements and regulations today as a way of redemption. And you try and fulfill all these rules and regulations and then you hope that maybe on the day that God judges you, he's in a good mood and somehow you slip in to his presence and his favor. Now, let me acknowledge what we touched on last week. There's two very debilitating realities in this system. There's two built-in limiters. First of all, access to God was limited, right? Access to God was limited. The priesthood was limited. The the priests were part of the tribe of Levi. Uh, But in addition, they were descendants, descendants, of course, of Aaron, Moses' brother. And it gets a bit confusing because all priests are Levites, but not all Levites are priests. But it's a very limiting thing. We read in verse 6, the priests go. Unless you're a priest, you can't go in. You just cannot go in. You're restricted. But Christ changes everything. Amen? Amen. Romans 5.2, you might want to write that reference down if you're taking notes. It's a glorious verse. 
It's a glorious verse. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Jesus gave us access. He unlocked the door. The veil was torn. The veil was torn. So first limiting factor is access to God's limited. Access to God is limited. And then the second thing we see in verse seven, look at verse seven, but into the second only the high priest goes and only but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Did you see that? The unintentional sins of the people. You know, the sins that we realize and we know about, they're, they're a lot. Has anybody here committed a sin this week? Oh, some of you are not truthful. <laughs> see, the unintentional sins, right? We have unintentional sins, right? Uh, when I drive here from Cambridge on Sunday mornings, um, I pray when I leave my house that the Lord would sanctify my right foot. <laughs> I'll leave that with you. Because when I drive, I don't come to 401, I come across here through these little towns named Arva. Does anybody know where that is? Anybody live there? Cute little town. And so when you come across that way, there's all these little towns. So you know, you're driving along and all of a sudden this thing flashes. Slow down, you're a preacher. No, it doesn't say that. Uh, it says slow down, and then I hear the Lord say, you're a preacher, right? But it says slow down. So you can't, you know, if I get pulled over past that sign, you know, I can't say to the cop, oh man, I, I know I was going uh, 80. I didn't realize it was 50 because I've already seen that I, you know, got to slow down. I'm going too fast. So I can't say, well, it was unintentional. But man, we have a lot of unintentional sin. The sin that I know of is staggering to me. When I think about what my unintentional sin is, it must be just, I, I must think the Lord just must, must cup his head in his hands. But we read here, we read here that God knows we have unintentional sins and he makes a way for it. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, a very interesting thing has happened probably in the last 15 years in our society. <clears throat> we used to do this. Uh, you know, you do something to somebody that's unkind, uh, you know, it's hurtful or whatever. We used to say, I I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Hard stop. Now, in our culture, people say this, I'm sorry that you took offense to what I said. Have you noticed the change? It's double speak. We are in a world that is increasingly defect deflecting its sinfulness. You know, it's not my fault, it, you know, it's something my parents did, or you know, it's the circumstances, or I know I promised that, but the, the context changed. Sin is everywhere, our unintentional sins. Uh, several years, well, uh, back in the 90s, I moved from here, Ontario, to the United States. On the day that we were loading up my U-Haul truck, a guy, one of my friends is helping me and he's, we're in my garage and he moves some boxes and he goes, oh, here's something, and he picks up this little piece of paper and it's a bill for a repair on my garage door that had been done a couple months earlier. I had, was living in this house and the garage door went kind of kooky. I was selling the house, so I had to get the door fixed. I looked on the door and there was a sticker on the door and it says, garage doors by Dennis. 
And I'm thinking, oh, he's the guy that installed it. I phoned Dennis. I say, Dennis, I live in this house. Uh, you put the door in, not for me when I bought the house. He said, oh, yeah, I'll come and fix it. I said, it's kind of, you know, kind of. So Dennis comes. I never hear any more from Dennis. But like three months later, on the day I'm loading the truck to move to Atlanta, my friend reaches down and finds a bill for $100 from Dennis that had fallen behind a box. And I'm leaving that day to drive to Atlanta. And I'm like, man, I'm gonna have to send Dennis $100. Guess what? I moved to Atlanta, guess what? What do you think? I forgot for a couple weeks and then I just ignored it. 11 years later, I moved back to Cambridge. I'm sitting at a traffic light. I look over in Tim Horton's parking lot and there's a van and guess what it says on it? Doors by Dennis. Dennis is still around. And I couldn't stop, but I, I quick, I, I grabbed my phone or my pen, and I wrote down the phone number on it, and I got home, and that night I phoned that number. I said, is this Dennis? He said, yes. I said, Dennis, you don't know me, but I need to come and see you. He goes, oh, okay. I said, you know, can I come to your house? Yeah, you can come to your house. So I go, and I knock on the door, and Dennis comes to the door. I said, Dennis, you don't know me. But I said, I owe you some money. Oh, you do? I said, yeah. I said, I owe you for a bill. Uh, and he said, well, how, how old's the bill? I said, 11 years. <laughs> I think at that point he wanted to call the police. He thought he had a kook on his front porch, right? <laughs> I said, it's 11 years. I said, I am really embarrassed, man. You know, it, it was an unintentional sin. And then frankly, I think it got fairly intentional. And then I just ignored. So I said, with the interest and everything, here's $200. He, he was so shocked. He says, hey, Mert. You know, he calls the wife. She comes out, you know. But you know, that's what happens, right? They're always doing stuff that we have to make right. Look back at he, uh, verse eight. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. Right? The veil has been torn. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered. Now this is important. This is my situation with Dennis. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. See, I, I was for 11 years in the United States. I was a missionary. I was doing God's work. I was serving God. But guess what? When it came down to it, I could not get that off my conscience because it was sin. It was sin. So what do you do if the sacrifice does not clear the conscience? Well, if you want to write a reference down, read Psalm 51. It's David. It's David after Nathan has come in to speak with him after he has sinned egregiously with Bathsheba. And David says this. Boy, he, he nails it on the head. Cries out to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice. You will not delight in sacrifice. It doesn't doesn't cleanse us, doesn't, doesn't lift the conscience, or I would give it, David says. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, chapter 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And why is that? Because the acknowledgement of our sin takes us the first step on the road of redemption. 
And you cannot find your way down the road of redemption until you don't acknowledge, you know what, I am broken in my own sin. My heart needs a renovation. And then once you start down that road, then you repent, and then you have the opportunity for your sin to be imputed, which is a theological term that you pay a lot of money to learn at seminary, which means your sin is deposited on Christ. You know, every Easter, one of my prayers is this. Father God, thank you that the cross could hold the sin, but it couldn't hold the Savior. Amen? Your sin is held at the cross. So back to Hebrews 9, what happens? What happens? Let me read to you verses 11 and 12 and then give you a couple points. But when Christ appeared as a high priest... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Now, I think that deserves an amen. Let me read it again. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have not come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing for the people of West Park Church an eternal redemption. Amen! If that is not reality, then us gathering this morning is for naught. So what does Christ do? Well, he secures eternal access for us. And redemption is completed for us. He removes our sin and he cleanses our conscience. And so now, if you look down to Uh, Verse number 14, how much more will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? See, we, we don't serve now out of duty and thinking that that is going to be an act of redemption. We serve the Lord now out of delight for what has already been accomplished. But remember... If we go back to the tabernacle, there's still one goat standing there, remember? Azazel. Azazel. We read about this in Leviticus 16. Now, you might know that name, Azazel, if you've got kids or grandkids. Do you know why? Because there's an evil character in Marvel Comics. Marvel has this evil character named Azazel, the scapegoat the scapegoat. And of course, that scapegoat would have the hands of the high priest laid upon it. And the symbol is that the sins of the people are laid upon this goat. I think I mentioned to you last week about uh, that uh, the goat would one time, one time came back into Jerusalem after all this took place after the t- in the temple period. And so they 
there was a uh, modification to the law of Moses that uh, not only was the goat sent out, it was sent out to a mountain and actually pushed off the mountain into the abyss to signify that this could never, uh, this goat could never return with its sins laid upon it. But they were gone. Verse 15, therefore he, Jesus of course, is the mediator of a new covenant so that we, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that has redeemed them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, which means that Christ redeems people from all of human history, even those who preceded him. Their sin was being cast forward ultimately on the perfect lamb. In other words, these sins that the high priest, or these sacrifices that the high priest was making were in some ways buying time for when ultimately the perfect lamb of God would be sacrificed. Verse number 18, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then there's a comma and a verse that we often share at communion. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Two things that we notice, blood shows the seriousness of sin. The seriousness of sin. And second, blood demonstrate that sin always brings death. If you want to address your sin, this spilt blood will bring death. If you start bleeding and, and you don't deal with it, you will die. That's the imagery that's given in this shedding of blood. In fact, at that first communion, Pastor Neil led us in communion just a week or two ago. And of course, that's why in communion we read in the New Covenant, Matthew 26, for this is my blood of this new covenant, the perfectly shed blood. Look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, remember? There's a perpetual nature of the sacrificial system. You gotta keep doing it, you gotta keep doing it. Not repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Wow, it's good news. That's redemption. That's redemption. He's put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's redemption. You can write that in your Bible there. Capital letters. Redemption. A great sacrifice. The sacrifice of himself. 
the Lord Jesus. A number of years ago, I was in northern Spain in a little village. And uh, I was there with a group of folks on a missions trip, much like uh, your group with uh, uh, going to Cuba, your church in Cuba. So I was in this little village, and um, we were staying in a little church kind of building that had a little lodging house there. And there was a group of us staying there. And one evening in this little town, which was a very agricultural town, one evening there was knock on the door, knock, 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 kind of a frantic knock on the door. And the pastor of this church opened the door and they were talking in Spanish. And I, I sort of wandered over to see what happened. It was a teenage boy and a teenage girl. They were probably like 15 and 13. And they were talking quite animated in Spanish. And I know un poquito espanol. But I'm listening, and, it's, and I'm trying to pick up a little bit of it. And finally, Pastor Manuel turns to me, and he said, I think they want you. I said, excuse me? He said, well, he said, they live across the street here from the little church in this house here. And in this little town, it's very agricultural. It's a lot of farmers. And what they do is they actually keep their animals at their home, sort of in the backyard. And in the morning, they take them out and pasture them on land that they own out. And then at night, they bring them back, cows and sheep. And actually, in the morning, you would see shepherds driving sheep down these little narrow, ancient streets. He said, I think they want you. I said, they want me. And he goes, yeah. He said, their dad told them that there's somebody staying over here from Canada who knows something about cows. He said, I think you're the only person from Canada. Well, a day or two before that, I was walking down the street and I looked over the fence and their father was in the backyard and of course, when you know un poquito espanol, you know enough to get yourself in trouble. <laughs> so I, you know, I start, you know, you know, broken Spanish and he knows a little bit of English and we, you know, and I say I'm from Canada and he says, my cows are from Canada. <laughs> I said, oh! But somehow that got translated to the man from Canada knows something about cows. And I said, I don't know a lot about cows. Now, I like a good steak at the keg, but that's about the extent of it. He said, well, the problem is mom and dad have gone into the city for the night. And they have a cow that's having a calf. And the cow's struggling, and they thought you could come. And I'm like, oh, my word. So I said, well, I'll... He, he said, why don't we go over? He says, I'll go, you come with me and we'll get somebody else. So we got a couple more people and we went across the road and we walked around into the back of yard of this house and when you step into the backyard, you step into the backyard. You know, it's, there's stuff back there. <laughs> and uh, the shoes I'm wearing, they weren't made, you know. So we get in there, here's the cow, she's having, and she, so they're talking to the pastor and he's talking to them and the pastor says, okay, they need a couple guys to stand at the back of the cow and help and they need one guy to stand at the front of the cow and help. And I said, I took the breathing classes with my wife. I said, I'll go to the front of the cow. I'll coach the cow. And they said, you gotta hold this chain. They had a chain on her head because she's struggling. She'll want, it's her first calf, she'll wanna lay down. You gotta just keep pulling her up. And I said, no problem, I'm your guy. I'm like, be at the front or be at the back? I'm at the front, I don't wanna be at the back. So I'm at the front and they're at the back and I grab a hold of her and I say, senora. <laughs> because you hope she's married, right? And uh, yeah. so I'm trying to hold her and 
and she's making some strange noises, and they're at the back, and they're reaching around and reaching in there, and stuff's going on, and the cow, and this goes on for you know, several minutes, and finally, from the back, the brother or the sister, I can't remember, yells, uno mas, uno mas. Now, do you know what that means? Who knows? One more. They're hoping that one more push, they'll push the calf out. Because, you know, it's part way out. So I look at the lady and I say, Senora, uno mas, you know, uno mas. While I'm saying, uno mas, uno mas, she lets out this noise. And pushes out. The same time that calf gets pushed out, out of the nose of that cow <laughs> comes maybe, maybe a liter, I don't know, of stuff. So I'm there like, uno mas, uno mas. And when that stuff go, comes out, it goes everywhere. I'm saying, uno mas. Yeah, now you get it. And, and that had a very unique taste to it. I have not even been able to look at a fruit bottom yogurt since. And it hit my glasses, it went in my hair, but we had a cow. A baby cow, you know, calf. I walked back across the street with Manuel and these other guys that were there, and we were the worst for wear. I was the worst, even though I thought at the front it'd be a little safer, but we were all pretty nasty. And one of the guys walking with me, his name was Doug, he's a very refined Southern Baptist guy. And he says to me, Brother Steve, your head is covered with nasal mucus. That's what he said. I said, in Canada, we call that cow snot. So, probably haven't been to a sermon before where you heard cow snot in the sermon, have you? And they, they, you know, then they got the giggles and, you know, got quite funny. I climb into my little bunk in that little, that little building there, that little chapel building that night thinking about that. And I was overwhelmed. Because what hit me was the reality of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. You know the grace of God in that he who was rich. Ever thought about how rich Jesus is? He who was rich for your sakes became what? Poor. So that through his poverty you could become what? rich. And I thought, you know what? From, from the moment of his birth, the Lord Jesus, his life was about, he was born in the same place I was just, with all of that smell and the manure and the flies. When you put that little manger scene out on top of your mantle at Christmas, it don't have no smell to it. But I was thinking, that's the place. He steps out of the glory of heaven and he steps into a place like that and from the moment he arrives, his life, his death is all about sacrifice. Amen? He's so rich and yet for our sakes he becomes poor. 
It's the mystery of the ages. Look what it says down in verse 27. Verse 26 is about redemption. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and we all will, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered up once to bear the sins of many, and if you're a follower of Jesus and he's your Lord and Savior, you put yourself in there, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is not redemption, that's expectation. So my question to you as we close this morning is this. Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? Now, eagerly waiting for Jesus is not passive. I'm waiting for Jesus. You're sitting around waiting for Jesus. Not at all. Eagerly waiting for Jesus means I I want my mind to be filled with his word because those are his thoughts. Eagerly waiting for Jesus means I want to have my heart overflowing with his love. Eagerly waiting for Jesus means I want to live out a life of joyful, Christ-like sacrifice. Eagerly waiting for Jesus means I'm blessed by the time I get to spend with fellow brothers and sisters. Eagerly waiting for Jesus means I have a posture of worship amidst the sense of my great sin. Eagerly waiting for Jesus means I delight in the reality that this world is not my home. Amen? Brothers and sisters, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? You know why? Because the best is yet to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father God, thank you that in Christ, the sufficiency of the sacrifice was absolute and eternal. We have been redeemed, and now we eagerly await. Come, Lord Jesus. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name and for his glory we pray, amen and amen.